Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Welcome to HivriaCast, a very, a very special episode of HivriaCast. We're having my boss, he told me I was fired if uh, I didn't have him on. That's <laughs> so not true. I mean, I mean, I'm so honored <laughs> oh, to, that. Have, <laughs> to have Brad Hirschfield on Hebreacast. Brad Hirschfield is the president of Klal, which is where uh, we, it's actually, uh, it's where I work full time. It's uh, also why we can have this podcast because we are just piggybacking off of uh, Brad's awesome podcast, which is uh, actually has two podcasts, which we'll get into, I'm sure, later. Um, one of them is called Six Minutes with Brad Hirschfield. The other one's called Cracking the Echo Chamber. Anyway, uh, I am so excited to have you here, Brad. I am so glad me. to be here. It's funny. Yeah. You're describing what you're piggybacking off of, and I look at what you have accomplished and what what we at Klal have accomplished because of your presence here. And I know everyone's going to go, oh, my God, can't they just stop being so nice to each other? They can't possibly mean it. But I really am. I, I, I really do mean it. And I know the stuff that I – well, I know two things, that the stuff I've enjoyed most in my life required the expertise of lots of people who could do things and knew things and knew how to do things that I really didn't. And I was never going to learn them, but I could appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And th- your abilities and presence here is a big piece of that. And the other one is that whatever I have pulled off, and this is not, you know, you spend enough years in yeshiva, it's true, you develop almost a perverse kind of humility, but this is <laughs> not that. <laughs> I know that whatever I've accomplished would not have happened whatever talents I've been blessed with, they would not have happened were it not for the teachers that were sent into my life, beginning with my own mom and dad. So you are now in that line of teachers. And so whatever kind of pleasure it is for me to be able to be a part of Chavriya Cast, I promise you it is at least equal the other way. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I I uh, I wanted to get into like if I had more time and I didn't think it was going to bore everyone, I would get into a big debate with you about who the teacher is. But you know, we'll, no, but we'll that's part. part. Of the, no, but it's not, <laughs> that's actually gets into the topic. For me, it's ne- almost never. We'll do it this way. It's never necessarily one or the other. Right. I mean, and that's not me making that up. When we have a tradition that has sages who say that. I've learned more from my students than anyone else. So who's the Rebbe and who's the the student? If the so-called teacher says I've learned more than I've learned from anyone from my students, and I take that seriously, I don't think that's just poetic nicety or some kind of, you know, new age, everyone's a winner. <laughs> but what if actually that's a way of saying everyone does have something to teach? And so the question isn't, Who's the teacher and who's the student? But how many teachers can we have in our lives? And how often can we feel like a student without feeling demeaned or belittled by that, but just go, wow, what an incredible opportunity. 
Well, you know, I think that's so interesting because I think that's the main reason that I feel like I'm here and probably, you know, that, that philosophy is why I think what drew me here by Hashem, whatever, like, because I think that as someone who started off as a Balchuva and always seeing, looking at suspicion with any any situation in which there was like a sales vibe to it, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the Jewish connection. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, I've kind of always had that experience. And even before I started, you know, trying to challenge status quo and blah, 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 like it was always <laughs> something I was kind of onto and, and, and bothered me quite a bit. And, um, and so I think like it's, it's pretty unique, especially, you know, as much as you may talk about it, like, I don't know if you're, to you, it seems like it, when I listen to you say it, it sounds like you consider it obvious, but I feel like yeah, I do a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it's, it's, just, it's so much a part of who I am. We'll get how I got here that I can't do it any other way. So I don't yeah. know if it's obvious, and I know I'm cutting you off, so if there's a point, just cut me off back. I came to this organization. I got kidnapped here by its founders. Yeah. Um, I had no interest in being a rabbi. I ran for years from being a rabbi, and it all had to do with the fact that I didn't want to be in sales. Hmm. And all the rabbis I knew, and I had grown up one way, and you know, we can talk about that as kind of passionately Jewish, but largely secular, but being sent to a conservative day school, and then I became Orthodox and lived in Israel for a number of years, and and pretty intense communities. I was, you know, I lived in Hebron. I was one of the early, I was one of the builders of the Avram Avinu neighborhood and first students and builders of the Shivat Shavei Hebron. I mean, pretty hardcore, mm-hmm. left Israel. And I could do a, a dozen more of those iterations. And the interesting thing is the takeaway for me from all of them was that they all had a real authenticity. And that the rabbis I knew in each of them were always selling the version that they were to other people. But I knew that couldn't exactly be right because if even though I'd chosen certain, right, and I don't imagine going back to other ones, they were they all had an authenticity. So how could you be in sales? Right? For me, what had happened so you're is saying, you're saying that there was a, a kind of a, a tension or a conflict between well, if the thing the, itself versus Yeah, the, and was, well, what I, I saw teachers, rabbis, who were always selling, by the way, the best of intentions because mm-hmm. they loved their way of being Jewish, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't that it was mean-spirited and it wasn't that it was, it was crass, God forbid. But in their enthusiasm for their way of Jewing, mm-hmm. somehow what got lost was there are as many ways to Jew as there are people who want to. And I had lived so many of them that the idea of being a rabbi who was selling any one particular way seemed crazy to me. It seemed a betrayal of the amazing life I had been given. Because for me, Jewishness, Torah, Yiddishkeit, whatever you want to call it, it's a way we have this amazing thing Again, called Torah, Yiddishkeit, Jewishness, I don't care. Of helping people become the person they think they are most called to be. And that means that I'm in service, not in sales. And I had so few models of rabbis who were not in sales. And so what happened for me, and I did have one teacher in Israel... Um, 
who was not in sales. His name was Rabbi Chaim Bravender. Um, and I'm still very much in touch with him. In fact, we're working on a book together now because he really wasn't ever in sales, even though he has his own diverse journey, grew up as a kid in Brooklyn and went to modern Orthodox schools and went to YU and then did a PhD at Hebrew University and is a Haredi rabbi and, and raised his kids in the, in the ultra-Orthodox world. But he really was never in sales, even though he's passionately committed to the way he lives. And I'm passionately committed to some of the choices I've made. And I don't imagine I'm going to renegotiate them. But I'm not in sales. I'm not trying to convince other people to do my way. What I want is for people to have as much access to this thing called Jewishness, to this tradition called Torah, as this amazing toolkit to build the lives they feel most called to lead. But I'm not God. So, you know, it's interesting because I would love to, I think it's interesting because to, I think to you and me, because it's something that we're somewhat obsessed with, like this idea of sales versus service. I think it's something that we intuitively talk about a lot. But you know what? I think it'd be really interesting to kind of parse what that all means. Like what, what differentiates service from sales? You know, I think we touched on it. No, right? no, no. I th- th- we're getting at it now. I think what it has to do with is picture success. Right. I don't care what the venture is now. You can be in, 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 you know, engineering or in medicine or in, in, in sewing or in, you know, doing what we do. Hmm. For me, sales is knowing fully what the end product needs to look like for you to feel good. And that typically it looks very much like who you already are. Mm. That's sales. Mm-hmm. Service is knowing that at the end of the whatever the process is, the person you've interacted with, even if it's a little way, but I'm a messianic, so I want it to be in a big way, <laughs> will actually feel that their lives have more meaning and more purpose and more love and more wisdom, and more connection, and more commitment, but that it may express itself in ways you go, really? Hmm. That's, that's, why I'm, that's why I talk about a toolkit. When you give someone tools, they can build stuff. You go, oh, God, I don't want to live in that house. But if it works for you, and you're willing to pick up the tools and use your two hands to build it, it's hard for me to believe that long-term, that's a bad thing. And when it comes to Jewish, it's simple. I cannot imagine more people picking up 3,500 years of a tradition to build the homes and the communities and the relationships they want to live in, whether I do or not, and net out over time, that being a bad thing. It's just very hard for me to imagine. Why do you think people so much want to do sales like you know it seems to me like that's something that's so it's almost like a weird thing to say that you don't want to do like if you if If you really believe in it shouldn't you want to sell it right i mean and it's funny because i think most people don't use that word necessarily but that's essentially you know when you're trying to pitch something to let's say like a funder or different things like that it's often put in those terms you know in a hidden way but and i don't even mean it in a bad way and i want to be very very honest it's not like I'm never in sales. <laughs> okay. I mean, I could tell you stories of things that, and I want to be clear, my wife is much healthier about this. 
kind of things that we have had to work through with our kids, where I'm sure a lot of people go, not only, Brad, are you in sales, there's OCD medication for people who worry about those things. (laughs) Who worry about what things? And other details of things, whether it's things our kids want to do, but I think are inappropriate, or conclusions they've come to that I might not agree with. So it's not that I think you don't want that, especially for those closest to you, right? And and as a parent, and I'm further along this continuum than you, but it's three girls, (laughs) so it would be weird to be a parent and not want many of the things you love most for your kids. Mm. Okay. Right? And and I mean even little details. I mean, like, here's the guy not in sales who actually, you know, I have had deep disagreements with my kids about le- skirt length. Oh, yeah. And well. you're like, really? You? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I know even as I'm doing it, mm. that's not necessarily the best part of me. I have a right to do it because we all are who we are. We have our passions and our interests. So it's not that I'm precluding it completely. Mm -hmm. I think, so that's part of it. The first part, by the way, this is part of the method. Try and learn the positive side of the thing you're critiquing most. So here I am critiquing sales. I now feel I have an ethical obligation to identify what's the wisdom of sales. Where do I practice it myself, even though I say, oh, that's not the way to be. Right, So this is all part of not being in sales, ironically, is to appreciate the wisdom and the goodness of sales. It comes from passion. It comes from loving what you do. It comes from wanting to see it replicated, which now biologists will tell us is part of the human drive that keeps us here, the whole selfish genes thing. We want to see it replicated, and I believe all that. Hmm. It's just that can't be the be-all and end-all. And I think that's why people end up in it, because either they're told, well, you know, who's to say? Every follow your bliss. It's all equal. Who knows? Right? And they know that's not right. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people, when they hear the way you were talking, that it kind of comes off that way. Right. And I don't mean that. But the flip side of knowing that what I'll call, you know, postmodern paralysis and Mm -hmm. a kind of really dangerous relativism is not a rigid absolutism in which success always looks a certain way. Those cannot be the options. But I think out of fears, now we're going to the second reason, I think people end up in sales because they're so afraid of the descent into that kind of paralysis and relativism that they just build walls higher and higher and higher against it. Hmm. But the funny thing is when you keep building those walls to keep stuff out, somehow the walls we build to keep things out, they become prison walls that keep us in. And I don't want that to happen. When I said before it's because of my teachers, I really mean it. I would say what keep, this is the third part, what keeps it from being sales, great teachers and a lot of love. I, I, you know, I, I really did have great teachers starting with my mom and dad, even though I don't know they were conscious this is what they were teaching. In fact, I'm sure they weren't. And unconditional love. I think love actually makes us really brave. And when you're so deeply loved that you know it's not contingent on any one thing, then you can, you can go beyond it, right? You can say, okay, so my love for you is not dependent upon you doing X, even though, boy, would I like you to do it. But that's not what our relationship isn't built on that. Our relationship is built on love. And that when you feel you've been well-loved, it's amazing how you can pay that forward to others. 
So someone once asked you, what's the most important lesson they can give their kids Jewishly? I said, oh, that's easy. Love them unconditionally. And make sure they know that unconditional love for you is an expression of what you mean by God or Torah or Jewishness or any word you want to put in. That's the most important thing, I think, because once you've been loved unconditionally, whatever system generates that, and I want to be clear, I don't think we're the only ones who have a capacity to do that. I think that, you know, there are Christian versions of it, and secular versions of it, and Buddhist versions of it. It doesn't matter. That's what I think people need to live lives of service. They need to be so well-loved that their own authenticity is so real to them that they're not freaked out by other people being differently authentic. It's interesting because I think so much of what you're discussing also, like I can't help but think of the flip side of it. Like, for example, why do people build these walls? You know, I think it's often comes from this, you know, what we... most people would say is kind of the flip side of love would be fear, you know, in the sense that because we're so afraid, often it's sparked by love, obviously, but like that because we're so afraid that like, you know, kind of one step in the wrong direction will be, what's it called? Like, uh, you know, it's like a slippery slope. Slippery slope. Thank you. Yeah. Slippery slope. Like that (sighs) slippery slope. It's, it's, it's actually fascinating because the more that I've kind of delved into that sort of gray area, the more that I've heard that phrase used when yeah. I'm talking about what I do. And I think it's it's kind of interesting because in a way I kind of actually really sympathize with that in a sense because I see that it's kind of true like that. And I, you know, I'm going to qualify it, but essentially what I mean is that when I start to be less worried about the results of like where if someone is asking for advice or I'm talking with someone where I'm trying to create situations where people feel free to express themselves, then all of a sudden you see things go in directions you never thought they would. And in your mind, you can see as negative, you know, and, um, and then that fear starts to kick in because you see, oh my God, like I could in theory, like I've had this experience a few times now where I'm like, did I just, because I did that, did I just send someone in the wrong direction? Like it would have been much safer and much easier if I had kind of just guided them in the in a very specific direction. You know what I'm saying? I like, do, but of course it would have been easier for you. I don't know if it would have been easier for them. We're told you're supposed to give people the, the advice that's appropriate to them. It's so interesting that, you know, the phrase of uh, uh, of the aids that you give should be hagun to the person you give it for, right? It's, it's not. You have to give the right advice to keep them on the straight and narrow. Right. No, you have to give them the advice that's appropriate to them. So, yes, it would be much easier for us to always tell other people, if you just did it my way... I would feel so comfortable. But that's not an excuse for telling people, hey, you want to jump off the bridge, brother? You go for it. It's right, your right, life, right. and that's all that matters. That's insane. But I also and think- I, And I want to be very clear so it's not misunderstood. The fact that I am not afraid of slippery slopes does not mean there's no such thing as a dangerous <coughs> slide, does not mean there aren't failures, and does not mean there can't be real damage done. That's not true. I'm the I, I'm so far from a relativist, it's crazy. <laughs> it just means that I trust the tools I have. In my case, the tools are what I think of as Torah, that I feel I've been given the ability to hang on to those slippery slopes. 
What if actually what we've been given is thousands of years worth of thought and practice, of learning and thinking and doing that would give us the ability to be on the steepest of slopes and fundamentally be secure? Mm. We actually have ropes that are stronger Mm-hmm. And I'm a big guy, that are stronger than we can imagine. And we have climbing gloves that are stickier than we can imagine. And we've been given these tools precisely so we can be on the slopes. And that the real fear is not the fear the other person will do it wrong. The real fear is that I, who have invested in this, whoever the I is, that I can't hang on. And the tools I've invested in won't support me. And so I need you to mirror me so I can feel okay. The truth is, especially when it comes to the Jewish stuff, I chose this path Mm. so I don't feel any of that fear because I do what I do because I love it. Now, I want to be clear. I also believe it's because whatever God really is or really isn't out there, I feel has called me to this and demands that I do it. But they're intertwined. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with a way of being in the world and so I think that's why I'm not afraid. I mean, you know, I don't need other things. I mean, it's silly because I'm paraphrasing the book title, and I did not mean to do this. I don't need other things or people to be wrong for me to be right. Any more than, you know, so we're both married. Can you imagine waking up in the morning, and this is true for anyone who's lucky enough to be in a relationship with someone they really love deeply, and turning to your wife and saying, honey, The reason I love you and we're building this life together and we have these beautiful kids that God has given us, the reason I feel all this toward you is not because you're so special and kind and wise and loving, but everyone else out there is so damn stupid, ugly, and mean that I think I'll stick with you. Hmm. That's not how you build relationships. I don't need the other stuff to be ugly, stupid, and mean. I'm really in love with what I'm doing and what I hope is that other people will genuinely fall in love. And what we know is when you're really in love, it's amazing how much commitment it evokes. If someone tells me they love something but can't point to specific concrete commitments they're willing to make, even when it's inconvenient, they don't love. That's not love. So this idea that love is always hearts and flowers and always feels great, that's ridiculous. Genuine love will take care of everything it needs to on the commitment side if it's a real love. Nurturing that love, that's the service you perform for people as opposed to selling them on what their love should look like. You know, it's interesting because I think like that, you know, as you're talking, I'm also thinking about, you know, the moments where I felt like I had to guard my beliefs in a sense um, because I was very fearful that they were about to get lost was was when they were the most like just like incredibly brittle like i i remember there was you know right before i kind of made that like the take uh, right before i started taking the steps into like exploring my relationship between like my relationship between science and and Judaism and and kind of starting to also question some of my chabad teachings that i had kind of come through uh in my balchuva experience i remember that I was kind of desperately trying to just not think about these issues because they were so 
kind of it's just such a huge challenge to me. And I and I think and the way that I thought about it at the time was that if I don't go along with the way I'm thinking right now, or or kind of just guard myself from those thoughts, I'm not going to be religious anymore. You know, I was convinced of that. And I, I mean, subconsciously, I was convinced right. of that. And so I couldn't, I would tell myself, I remember telling myself, like, just don't think about it. And I, I, I remember I, the only reason, actually, and it's actually amazing to me because it kind of combines what you're saying in terms of spouse. I, the only reason that I think I was able to address it in a way that was healthy was because I finally went to my wife and I said, you know, I think I'm going off the derrick, like which was this crazy, ridiculous I think thing. That's to the say, title of a piece you wrote that yeah, I remember exactly. And I think that, well, I think what was so funny about that was that I so wasn't. You know, like it was right. just that that I thought that that's what it was. Right. You know, and I think so. It's kind of uh, again, I, I keep pulling on the dark side of what you're talking about, <laughs> but I think it really helps illustrate it, I guess. And and it's also what I tend to gravitate towards thinking. Uh, why things like love are so powerful because then once I kind of got through that and, and my wife Rivka encouraged me to explore that and that's what I was saying was so positive about that interaction she was like why don't you instead of saying that why don't you just explore these questions like why are you like still you're still addressing it with fear if you're not right. you know and so once I did that it was incredible and I and kind of again the point I'm coming to is that it was through that encouragement through love and from a person who was dealing with Judaism in a in a in a much more healthy and uh, loving way, that I was able to kind of understand that, and now I'm amazed because as much as my viewpoints may differ from others, it's like this a totally different relationship right. with Judaism. Right. And I want to be clear. So it, I want to come back to something you said before. It's very profound about the opposite of love. But I don't even mind if people act out of their own fears. I'm sure I do it too. Mm. And I. And it's okay, we all, at least everyone I know, sometimes acts to protect ourselves from those fears. I understand that. As long as protecting ourselves from what we're afraid of doesn't make us hostile or mean-spirited toward other people. Mm. You could have come to me and said, look, Brad, I don't want to ask some of these questions because I am terrified if I go down that path, I'll lose so many things that I love. Mm. Now, I'm with your wife about the best way to travel is to feel the love and support you need so you can be on the slippery slope of those issues. But if that's not possible, and you said, no, I don't want to lose these other things, and I'm afraid that I will, I would say, then don't go. But just make sure that it doesn't warp how you see other people who choose to go that way. You have every right to say there are certain things, all of us do, we don't want to explore or try or experiment with because no matter how much we've been told it's safe, it's okay, don't worry, we are worried. And that's totally fair. Totally fair as long as it doesn't warp the other stuff. And as I've, you know, we've tried to... Well, how do you know that? I mean, how do you know the difference? Because the truth was that that I feel like what happens, and at least that happened with me, is that I think that when that that inaction happens because of fear, um, it's almost impossible to, at least with me, in that situation specifically, at least. And so maybe I'm not thinking broadly enough, but... um, 
I felt like it was impossible for me, for it not to affect the way I look at others, the way I look at myself. So, I mean, on a, again, on a subconscious level, looking back. That's so I think that's what we have to really cultivate. Mm-hmm. And as we'd have to know that now we're back to service, not sales. That the real goal there is what kind of human being are you? And does living your life a certain way get in the way of being that kind of human being? Mm-hmm. Right? So I started to say, we've raised the kids, and, and one of our daughters is... is um, Boy, she's already 23. And the other one is turning 20. And they're both passionately committed Jews. They are both passionately committed Orthodox Jews. But they definitely have different worldviews about things. Um, One of them is much more kind of straight and narrow character in everything that she does. And the other one is a much more, I would say, kind of artistic, expansive type. Mm. And they often see things in very different ways. And I could see their lives playing out in very different ways. Just And again, to the outside world, there's like no difference between them. I get it. Mm-hmm. But in our little tiny world, there's differences. And I don't mind if they fight about those things. I think it's very healthy. The message they've gotten from us as parents, the little one's 15, just too early, too early for this, although it's starting a little bit there, is you can do this any way you want. We have one litmus test. Don't ever let how you're doing it become an excuse for a closed-heartedness or a narrowness to people who do it differently than you. That's the only test. That's the only test. And that's straight out of the teaching that I was given by my parents when I turned their world inside out by bringing a whole world of rules they didn't need, they didn't, my mother didn't even know existed. My father sort of knew they existed, but it left them behind long ago. And they rolled with it on the condition that I would still roll with them. So I think that's how you can do it. You can, the measure of whether or not you're giving into your fears too much is not how you're making choices. It's what's your attitude toward other people. Mm. And that's the way in which even so-called open-minded people can be very close-minded. Right? They're very progressive about the decisions they've made. And it's amazing how they talk about other people like they're non-humans because they're not progressive enough. You know, I, I, everyone has a way of narrowing their focus so all that they see is themselves and everyone else who's wrong. And it's, it's, that's the thing to work against. So what's, so, the, so what's the connection there? Why is it that... In some situation, like what what's the different like what leads a person to do that? I guess is what I mean because you're saying what is the litmus test? Well, why why is that the litmus test? I guess what is the what does that reveal about a person's beliefs? Oh God, I don't know if I can tell you what it reveals about their beliefs, but the other I can answer. I think because for me, I don't know. I guess I be- you know I'm crazy. I actually believe that things like decency and love are the point of all this. And if it becomes an excuse to be indecent or unloving to other people, however noble the individual actions may be, something's off. Something's just badly, badly off. And so, you know, you want a theological approach? I guess I work backwards from the idea that we're the first people in the world to begin the story, not with the creation of the first member of our tribe, but the first human beings. And then to be told that all of those human beings, as weird and whacked out as some of them may be, are all created in the image of God. 
So you tell me how you would treat that lunatic over there like an image of God. They may still be a lunatic, but if whatever it is you're doing somehow erodes that capacity to see them that way, you've lost the thread of what I think we're here for. So I can't, you know, so a lack of love, fear, and that's what I said I thought was so profound that you said before, that the opposite of love is not hate which for some people I know sounds banal and they already know that, but for I think a lot of people it's not what they've been told. The opposite of love is fear. And I think that's a really profound thing. So when someone's afraid, you're not going to talk them out of their fear, but you could love them out of their fear. right? We all know that. When someone, like if you have a fight with someone or, or you're upset and someone says, calm down, <laughs> that ever work? Yeah. Of course not. And it's no one's fault that it doesn't work because most of us would like to be calm. If we could be calm at that moment, we would be calm at that moment, but we can't because don't you see? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's amazing how in the midst of those struggles and fights, if you look at someone and say, do you know how much I love you? Again, you're still going to have the fight. You may never resolve the disagreement. But imagine a disagreement rooted in mutual love. It's just a fundamentally different kind of disagreement. It's interesting because it, it, I think that we so often think that because, and I know, especially recently, I know that I've fallen into this, and I think a lot of people have, uh, uh, because my cause is right or because my and especially because we it tends to be a cause like for example you're talking about like progressive things where the cause is other people in a sense um but because my cause is right then you know then my motives must, must be right right and i think that's something that is so clearly not the case um and it's so clear. And I think, I guess that's where I'm starting to kind of grasp what you're saying, because I think that the thing is that it's so kind of when you see how people relate to others that they disagree with, it's kind of very, it's very revealed in a sense what the motives are. I, w- I wouldn't go so deeply as to say I know what their motives are, but I'm saying mm-hmm. that when it's revealed that they're kind of at war uh, and, or at least judging, not seeing a person as a person, I guess, would right. be the theological uh, discussion we're having. Um it's that's when you kind of see that you know. Is it the cause, or are you doing it for a different reason? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Like, and by the way, even if your motives are right, there are limits on everything. There's no such thing that I can think of that is such a good cause that it has no limits at all. There's no such thing. In fact. Oh. That notion of a thing, which by definition, even if it's a cause, is finite. And if you think there are no limits, that that cause is infinitely self-justifying. I mean, this is, your motives can be very good. I don't, I don't want to judge people's motives. All I know is the track record of even the best causes which treated themselves as having no limits is pretty horrible. And if you want to, you know, again, go back to a kind of theological, that's for me the definition of avodazara, of idolatry. Mm. It's mm. the false absolutization of something which by definition 
it's you've actually forgotten that it's finite and and you you can't do that you you've ascribed this kind of infinite value to something but it's a good cause there are things that you know i believe are worth fighting for and i don't mean that you know poetically there are things i think that are worth fighting for dying for tragically killing for but once that becomes synonymous with there are no limits, there are no questions to be asked, there's no sense of accountability, I just, I'm just i open to revisiting the conclusion, but I don't know of any cause that treated itself as having no limits, however ennobling it was at the outset, that didn't go off the rails. So I'll even tell someone, no, I'm sure your motives are good. But tell me where the boundary is, the place beyond which you will not go. You know, and I, look, you, you come at things from the frame you know. So the example I'm going to give is a very traditional Jewish one. All the rules for what we, that shape what we don't do on Shabbat, right? Mishnah calls them the Av Melachot, these master categories of creative action. But even creative action is a terrible translation. The malachot, those acts, are all the things that were understood to be done to build the mishkan, the place where God lived among the Jewish people in the desert. That's a rather amazing thing, that one day a week we're told we can't do the things that are necessary to build God's house. That's pretty amazing, because across human history, if you believed you were building your God a house, you could do anything you wanted to anyone you wanted to do it to. Because, as they said in the Crusades, God wills it. Butcher a few million Muslims, God wills it. Hundreds of thousands of Jews along the way, God wills it. By the way, maybe God did will the Catholic Church to control the Holy Land. I don't know. But when God wills, it becomes an excuse for no questions. That's idolatry. And one of the things I love best about Shabbat is the reminder that, actually, the one thing I believe God wills is that you can't use God wills it as an excuse. So one day a week, even when you're doing the thing which ought to justify everything and justify worse anything... Stop, because even God can become an idolatry. And once I know that God, God's self, can become an idol, then I'm damn sure whatever political views I have can become an idolatry, whatever, you know, what, anything. Once I know, because what could be a better motivation? I'm pursuing God's will. I'm pursuing God's will. Yeah, guess what, buddy? That too can become an idol. And I'm speaking to myself and letting other people listen. And so I think that's the corrective, is to know that it's not the bad stuff that gets out of control. Because the bad stuff that gets out of control eventually, either someone better comes along and kills it, or it burns itself out. It's the well-intentioned stuff that gets out of control that's really scary. Because we can seduce ourselves into believing anything. I mean, I don't, I'm not usually a big fan of... Holocaust stories, but I'm going to share one with you because it was one that was taught to me by my teacher, Yitz Greenberg, who was with Elie Wiesel, the founder of Klal. And 
he tells the story of Otto Ollendorf. Ollendorf was a rather interesting character. He was a colonel in the SS, and he was distinguished by the fact that he was the first officer at Nuremberg after the war to actually admit what he had done. Apparently, before Ollendorf came into the court, it was amazing. All these colonels and generals. I, I was on vacation that day. I was in a bar drinking that. It was amazing. Millions of people were murdered, but no one was commanding this. Didn't exist. Ollendorf comes in, says to the court, I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is I was the commander of a shooting squad in Poland. My job was to move through Poland with my unit and round up Jews, mostly Jews, but gypsies, gay people, whoever was on the list, and shoot them. That was my job. And I did it. And he says to the court, I want you to know it was very hard to do. (laughs) He says, I never thought that I was going to be an SS officer. Before the war, Ollendorf tells the court, I was training for one of two professions, medicine or the Lutheran pastorate. I thought I would heal bodies or heal souls. It was very hard to shoot all these people. But here's why I did it. Because I had come to believe that what the Fuhrer said was true. If we could resist the weakness to give in to those questions we had and break through we would perfect the world. It's a beautiful motivation, perfect the world. But it turns out that the urge to perfect the world with no questions and no self-reflection and no brakes, like a car with no brakes, it'll drive us all off a cliff. And I understand that sometimes riding the brake, the conservative impulse that way, keeps the car from going anywhere. I do. I understand that. But no, it's actually when the motivations can be quite good and the cause is fantastic, but there's no brakes. Again, I just, I don't know when that ever works out well. Maybe in the short term for some people. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think that when we talk about Nazis and we talk about um, hate and, and all the art I guess actually hate's probably not the right word but I think when we talk about that time I guess is probably a better way of putting it um, at least I know for me maybe it was different for you cause, um, but it was almost like a a movie in a sense where there were these evil bad guys that did these bad things and motivated by hate and motivated by evil and like all, and whatever and I think you know the older I've gotten the more that I've you know, so my point being that I, I couldn't see how it's, it's, it seemed like just a thing that was like an aberration. Like it, it right. wouldn't, it couldn't actually happen. It happened once and it was like this thing that we messed up or something. But the, right. but the truth is, obviously, first of all, there are horrible things happening all the time. But I think uh, the deeper truth, I think, and I think that you're bringing out is they weren't necessarily, I, and I have to be careful about how I, I know. put this. Everything here is wrong and right. You know what? I'm not going to say that. What I will say, I'm not going to say what they weren't. But I, I will say that I think the thing that I missed a lot uh, growing up and why I thought it was so fan- fantastic in the sense of 
fantasy um, was that I, I just thought that they were just trying, trying to destroy. And I think mm-hmm. what's very clear in, in this story is these are people that had this messianic vision. And if anything, maybe that, you know, and again, I don't want to speak for everything, but I think that when the moment I started to understand that, the moment I could start to see that in the present day. And right. I think that was when, and that's when like things can get a little scary because you start to see it in places that you didn't Right. But once expect, you know it yeah. about your own cause, you can build in the corrective and then be passionate as hell about pursuing it. <laughs> it's not an excuse for shutting down or for going into the streets or for raising a voice of moral conscience. God forbid. Right. That's so funny because I think It's that's, not at yeah. all. If it does that, that's the paralysis that actually will. So it's good. You won't be a victimizer, but you'll stand quietly by while other people are victimized. That's no, that's, I'm not sure that's any better morally. And it's certainly not better for the person being victimized because they're just as dead. But the way you raise the voice is different. And you have to see that in yourself. I, mean, I remember my senior year of high school in, in Jerusalem. And we had this teacher who was kind of, it, we were a bunch of Americans finishing high school in yeshiva in, in Israel. And he was sort of famous for being the one who would kind of talk straight with us, you know, like guys who never used their Hebrew names except when they were learning. He would say, I'm not calling you that. What, what name do you say? What name do you go by in the basketball court? <laughs> That's what I'm calling you. Like he, was, he wanted it to be very real. <laughs> and, and at some point, and it was a class in, in modern Jewish thought, Hashkafa. And he said, you know, there are people who believe that without a Holocaust, there would never have been a state of Israel. Because I'm curious to know how many of you, if that's true, and I said, okay, we can undo the Shoah, but there will be no Medinat Yisrael. How many of you would say that that's a, a worthwhile trade? Of course, we're a bunch of, you know, 17-year-old B'nai Akiva boys. Not one hand went up. And he looked at us and said, I've never been so ashamed of my students. I can't teach anymore today. I'll be back tomorrow. He got up and he walked out. And we sat there saying, but we gave the right answer, no? I mean, God's ultimately in charge, and if there had to be a Holocaust, there had to be a Holocaust. We have to have a state. We really didn't get it. So so the students were saying that it was... If it has to be, it has to be. We're not giving up on this state. And if the price is six million murdered, oh, what can we do? So you were saying, like, if you could have gone back and... He said you can go back. I see. There's not a Holocaust, but there's also no state for us to be in. And we said, no, we wouldn't make that trade. Now, and he literally got up and left. Hmm. We were completely confused because, of course, we were, you know, we were with the cause. (laughs) (laughs) And we really didn't understand it. It began to dawn on us that maybe we had been a little cavalier about the death of millions and millions of people (laughs) in the name of the cause. And by the way, in his off time, this rabbi was an officer in the army, and he was like, he had done... And the, the truth is, in many ways, the remainder of that class was about how to combine our passionate commitment to that particular kind of religious Zionism 
without it becoming so absolutist that we didn't understand in the end, hmm. those those human lives would, there's no you know there's no compensation for that that can justify that. Take the lives. We'll figure out the rest later. But we had to learn that. We had to really understand we could be passionately committed and still know that there are limits to the cause. And I think it's, it, to me, I, I'm always reminded of just kind of this, you know, the most cliche sort of uh, wording of the ends don't justify the means. And I'm actually fascinated by that line because I think that I personally am, am amazed at how often I kind of come to realize that the means are maybe more important or the than the ends, you know? And that's so hard to remember, especially in extreme situations or when you feel really strongly about something. Right. right. And, and I'll make it even harder. Sometimes the ends do justify the means. Yeah, but I... And, least, and I want to yeah. be clear. Sometimes we do things that leave us haunted forever. Because what I'm suggesting does not mean you always get to feel morally good and morally pure. Sometimes the ends do justify the means in the sense that, I mean, so there are only two times in my life that I ever fired a weapon at people. And I'm happy that I don't know if my bullets found their intended mark. But I I know two things from each of those encounters. If they did, then there are our mothers somewhere in the West Bank who, if they met me and knew, they would say, you're a murderer. You murdered our sons. And I also know that I have nothing for which to apologize. And I live with the partial, if not total, truth of both of those claims. So at some level, I do believe the ends justify the means. I just know that if that's always the case, you have become whatever it is you think you're fighting against. And you live somewhere in between. Sometimes the ends, I guess, do justify the means. But if that leaves you feeling okay about it, then something is terribly wrong. Because if the ends don't ever justify the means, then the means are going to be pretty confined. And I think that sometimes that's, we, don't, we don't have an alternative. But I also know people say, well, I had no choice far too often. Does that make sense? In other words... This whole ends means thing is complicated. Maybe it's a version of what you're starting to say anyway. That each means is an end also. I don't know. You do your best. 
you try and make space either for other views, either during or after. You try and find the courage to ask tough questions of the people and ideas you love most. Not because it will paralyze you into an action, but because you realize the thing you most oppose probably has at least some element of humanity and decency and truth more than you imagine. By the way, it still may be you have to destroy it. It still may be you have to destroy it. But understand that what you're destroying is more you than we often let ourselves feel. And I think when you feel the thing against which you're fighting is actually an extension of yourself, it's not that there'll be no fights. But whatever fights there are, they're going to be a lot shorter. And we're going to find alternative solutions a lot faster, I think. When I realize it's not just you I'm fighting against when I'm fighting, even if I need to be. I'm fighting against me too. So probably, even if it's necessary, this is not a good situation to be in. And I need some alternatives. Beautiful. Speaking of ends. <laughs> so, Shannon, on something positive, which is that I really believe with all my heart that there are more alternatives available to all of us than we ever let ourselves see. And that if people could see the alternatives and be given a little freedom to explore them, we won't always get it right, for sure. But it's amazing how much more right, how many more of us would get it. The alternatives are there, and I would just say anytime someone says, no, 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 there's no possibility of that, whatever they're talking about, short of like physical reality, and even then, because once upon a time they said there's no possibility, the world is round. When people tell us intuitively, no, no possibility of that, run, don't walk from them. For me, that's another way of saying that's the definition of being a religious person or a faith-filled person. We always know there's more mm. out there and in here than we at first give ourselves or the world credit for. I love that because that's so unfortunate. I mean, not to be critical, but it's so it's very often people associate religious with, with the other one, which is... I know. The I always tell you if, you, if you're truly pessimistic, by definition, in my view, you can't be a religious person. <laughs> it's not possible. By the way, don't you have to think everything's hearts and flowers and the birds are chirping? That's, that's stupid. But if you don't believe there's always more than we at first see and always more that's possible, you, you haven't figured out yet what it means to be religious. How you live that out, like I said, I'm in service, not sales. But a world in which people really did believe intuitively, instinctively, almost automatically, there was always more there than meets my eye. I, I'd rather live in that world than one where people didn't know that. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. Um, if people want to find you, I can find you. I don't you know. You're responsible for where people it's find me. So where should they go? Normally, I'm telling people <laughs> to plug themselves, but I, you know, I feel like check out Brad's uh, podcasts on the Wisdom Daily and his writing on the Wisdom Daily. 
what else should we be plugging? You can find know. him on Facebook. Just is yeah, all the usual places. And, and, uh, uh, and I actually respond to people when they're in touch. At least I try to. Mm-hmm. Um, but since you, a lot of the one has been pushing it, I think definitely. I hope people listen to to the podcast and and to be in touch and share their thoughts because it's an ongoing work in progress and it's definitely being co-created, not just by you and by me, but by the people who interact with us there. Uh, and definitely true for the wisdomdaily.com. So I hope people will go there too. Love it, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HivriaCast. I'm Alad Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash Mag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Kal, Kalad, Kalyan.